0: The following resource is presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to A Counselor's Point of View. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. So we want to welcome our online listeners this morning. We really appreciate the input that you give us on a weekly basis. And I thank each of our people that are connected to our podcasts in the Philippines, and we are praying for you, the situation that you were involved with there. So today's message is entitled, Repentance for the Psychological Area of Life. So let's take a look at our first slide. The title that we put on this is, God and Equal. Man's default from birth is to be equal with God, if not rise up above God. Why would that be true? Why is it that when a child is born into the world, he immediately has a striving to be an equal with God because of sin? What was Adam's first sin? And it started out by wanting to be equal with his with his woman. See, as soon as she stepped forward and she partook of the tree of knowledge, it put Adam in the back seat. Even though he was still perfect, nobody likes to be left behind. Misery loves company. The sin of competition was activated instantly. Nobody likes to be left behind. And so this equal thing became an issue in their marriage from that second forward. It just so happens the deception that Satan used on Eve was you can be like God. Okay? Let's take it back a little bit further. We don't know when this happened nor does it really matter but we know it did happen and that was uh, Satan decided to approach the throne of God. And what did he try to do? He tried to be not like God. He already believed he was like God. He wanted to rise above God. So that's why this is the two primary acts of deception we submit to because we're born into sin. And that's to be equal with God. And then there's some of us who believe we can literally rise above God and take his job. We call that Godship. So now, not only is this a sin, but it is entirely fruitless. It does produce a fruit, by the way. What does Galatians call that fruit? Fruit unto death. There's fruit unto the Spirit. Then there's fruit unto death. This produces a fruit unto death. So why do we attempt to do such ridiculous things that rise up against the knowledge of God? The sin that became our identity in the garden was and is to be like God. And even though the thought of such an act is absolutely ridiculous, It is literally uh, that of a fool is what the scripture says. It's ridiculous. Even try to think you can be like God. It becomes the primary goal for us every single day. All day long. 24 hours a day. We practice such futility on a daily basis, and seriously, how could the creator and sustainer of all the universe and beyond, the designer of everything spiritual, psychological, and tangible, the controller and lord of all the thrones, dominions, and powers, both visible and invisible, the architect of eternity, how could he possibly have an equal? For there is no one like God. Our passage this morning is just clear. Besides me, there is no God. So Satan's number one goal is going to be to develop billions of gods. Now you want to hear the irony of this thing? When it's all said and done. Right now, in the church age, the age of grace, we're going to take advantage of grace so that sin may abound. I don't know if you've thought that through much, but in the prophetic realm of the book of Revelation, we're dispensationalists. Therefore, we believe that we are in the age of grace. Well, Satan's not going to let us get away with that. He's going to want us to take advantage of grace so that sin may abound. And so that is what's happening to our church today. Everything's about grace and loving Jesus, Jesus loving you. He'll love you no matter what. And, you know, it's on and on and on and on. So what's happening is you're seeing leaders fall by the droves because of grace. Should I sin that grace may abound? Yes, is what the church says today. Yes. When you stop and look at the list of what's happened to the church in America, it is beyond embarrassing. I mean, when we look at the latest translation, I just read yesterday an update on NIV And bookstores are emptying out the old 1984 NIV. They're just getting rid of them all. Because there are probably hundreds of thousands stored up in warehouses around America. They're emptying it out and pulling on a full-on marketing effort on the 2011 translation. Which is considered today. To be the greatest blunder in church history. Removing 3,866 references to he. Jesus is no longer a he. You can make him she, he, shem, shemale. It doesn't make any difference. You can make him homosexual. You can make him not. It doesn't make any difference. We are going to see the ramifications of that single single blunder in church history within the next 10 to 15 years. It will affect every form of politics. It will affect every form of religion. And it will become. I know that NIV is the number one Bible used worldwide. But I'm telling you, we can mark these words because they're not mine there's coming a day when we will be able to credit the 2011 translation of NIV as uniting religions throughout the entire world. Now, in our magazine, we released a, as as you know, I actually have a narc, so to speak, who's on the research team of NIV, which, by the way, I've been invited to join as a critic. As one of the reviewers of the work that's going on in NIV, I accept it, by the way. So I meet with these other critics who are trying to war against some of the stuff that the NIV NIV team is is doing. For example, the next translation they're working on, which will be released in 2015, is the PETA version, the Animal Friendly NIV. I can tell you what they're doing next, after PETA. But I am not going to dump that on you quite yet. It's appalling. So you say, how in the world does this happen? It's very simple. They're all trying to be God, the creator, the interpreters. They want to be the ones in charge of the Holy Scriptures. They're not holy anymore. I don't know what they're talking about. It's like when they used to say that the living Bible was a holy Bible. Do you know that, that, that Kenneth Taylor would roll over in his grave? If he heard that, thank God heaven binds us from being able to see the destruction on heaven once we get there because it would destroy him. That wasn't his point in writing the paraphrase. Not to call it a holy Bible. It was a devotional for his kids. But we turned it into this holy living Bible. It's the number one, two translation that is quoted from worldwide. It's ridiculous. It's not even a Bible. It's not even a quality translation. It's a thought for thought. Well, we don't understand those things. So we gotta ask ourselves the question why is it we gotta do this constantly to God? Why do we have to do this? If you don't control the Word of God, you can't control the people. Do you understand that? Whoever's controlling the Word of God gets to control the entire world. Why is that so complicated to understand? The enemy has to have 2,222 translations. He has to. Because whoever controls the word, controls the world. And the reason why that is, is because if you don't have control of the world, how in the world can you introduce to the world a, a new government? A new religion. How can you do it? You can't. Can you imagine if you're preaching from your Bible and someone in the audience says, "Uh, Excuse me, excuse me. That's not what my Bible says. I've had people do this in my teachings for many, many years. That That's not what mine says. So, of course, you have to stop and say, well, what does your Bible say? Well, mine says blah, 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 blah. It doesn't say anything about condemnation of sin. What are you going to do with that? Argue with the person about the original text for the next 20 minutes while everyone else gets lost in thought? That's what's happened to our churches. There are only several translations worth discussing, and most good Bible preaching theologians or preachers know that that is true. As soon as as soon as someone says, "I have an NIV," "I have a Living Bible," "I have a paraphrase of the," "I have," OD or whatever, I have to listen. Check the box and say it is fruitless to discuss this with this person because they've attached themselves to a translation that is nothing more than a man expressing his thoughts about someone else's actual translation. Did you hear what I just said? Someone put a translation together. That's what it means when it says, when you open up the list and you see each one of the translations, the primary t- translations, and it goes word for word, thought for thought, phrase for phrase. And then there's another category of basically just make it up. It just comes out of your own head. You read it and it just comes out of your own head. And those are your message Bibles. And your. It's just, okay, I'm reading it and here's what I think. Possibly they're saying. So, anything that pulls away from a word-for-word translation is going to move it into a category of thought-for-thought. Well, if mine's a word-for-word and the person is going to be sharing with me as a thought-for-thought, it is a fruitless discussion. Because thought-for-thought puts the emphasis upon emotion. Word for word puts the emphasis upon actual translation. A friend of mine and I were actually picked to be a couple of the readers for the teen NIV before it came out. And so I remember the package coming from the publisher. My friend and I opened it up and I took mine went into my office and he took his into his office and, and I opened it up and right from the original, it gave a warning from the translators that we have removed the following five words for the protection of not having our teens feel condemned, repentance, sin, condemnation, you know, words that actually lead us to salvation. You're going to hell, you're going to die, and you're going to face judgment. You need to take a look at that. Well, Teen NIV is considered one of the most popular translations of our day. And I know that I know personally the damage that that translation is doing to our youth today. People don't want to talk about going to hell. People don't want to talk about decisions that they make that are condemning by God. They want to know grace. They want to sin so that grace can abound in their church. And now we're in a position of having homosexual pastors and 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 The reason why that we have all this in our church is because we are in the church age of grace. But I'm here to tell you, and there's very few conservative theologians that disagree with this statement, I am here to tell you the church age is coming to an end. where our Savior, our husband, is going to come back on a white horse, fire in his eyes, a drawn sword, and he is not going to be the Christ-looking image that we saw when he was here in his first coming. Do you know that John, the beloved of Jesus Christ, did not even know who he was talking to? And who was talking to him when he was lifted up and to see eternal life as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See, he didn't even recognize who this was. Because he had gray hair. He had fire in his eyes. His tongue was like a sword as he spoke. They were not talking about this humble... Almost meek to the point of error, image that we have painted him to be, and that we have these paintings on the wall of this placid, passive, compliant Jesus. That was for the first coming. He did not come to bring judgment, he came to bring peace. And he wanted to show the people the first half of the bridge. The second half of the bridge is going to be much different. And I'm telling you, the church age today is not going to recognize Jesus Christ in his second coming. I can assure you of that. They're going to think that this guy that has come in this second coming is harsh, is rude, is violent, is angry, is not the Jesus that they're used to reading about. In the church age. Oh, I know what my Jesus looks like. First coming. And second coming. I see both the lamb and the lion. In my mind. I don't see a lamb anymore. Do you understand that? The lamb doesn't die. In respects of dropping off. The face of God's new earth. The Lamb is already present. The Lion of Judah is about to show up. And the Lion and the Lamb shall lay together in perfect peace on the new earth. Not today. Because when He comes back in the second coming, it will be with a sword in hand. Complete different image than what we're used to seeing. Now let's break it down. Who knows the mind of God? Number one, for mankind to think that they can know the mind of the Lord is making use of their own futility. It's nothing more. It's nothing less than ridiculous. I know there's only one way to hear the mind. Of the Lord. How is that? What's that? Okay, but how can you actually hear the mind? Well, you guys must have had some exchange life training because that's not the most common answer. The most common answer is to read the Word. Since there's 2,000 plus translations. That is not impressive to me. The Word of God came to dwell among us so that we could behold His glory. He lives inside of us, first. Secondly, as we read a good word-for-word translation, it bears witness with who the Word is in and through us. So how do I hear the mind of Christ in me? Through the fact that I have the life of Christ in me. That's not a popular, cute little phrase we're supposed to make plaques with. It is something that's true. If he lives in us, he's going to speak to us from the inside out. He's going to put his thoughts in our minds so we can preach, teach, counsel, or whatever through the mind of Christ. It's the only way. And anyone who says they're a believer and they're as dead as that doorknob going into the bathroom, if you turn them, they'll work, but they're dead. And they will decay with that door. That is someone who thinks they're saved and they're not saved. They, too, shall go to hell. The majority of those who say they're Christians will Go to hell without question. Deception isn't deception if you're not being deceived. It has no purpose. And the church age is under an enormous amount of deception. Many, many, many shall call out, I know you, Lord. I casted out demons in your name. I preached in your name. I established worldwide ministries in your name. And Jesus is going to say, You're saying, but how could that be? They, they, they passed out Bibles. They fed hungry children. They, how could that be? Unless you have the living life and mind of Jesus Christ in you, Folks, listen to me careful. I don't care if you're in a country like India that fights these truths or if you're in these tiny little squatty countries out in the middle of the ocean. I'm telling you today, you're going to hell. Unless you have the very life of Jesus Christ in you that is the proof, the only proof of salvation. It's nothing else. It's not pew setting. It's not having churches. It's not pouring yourself out in Sunday school. It's nothing but having the life of Christ in you. That's the only proof you'll need. When you stand at the the gates of judgment and you pull out your identity... And you say, okay, uh, well, here's who I am. And so, you know, you show them your identity and, and the being in charge of identity says, well, that's a picture of you. Well, yeah. That's when I was born. There's my, there's my number. That's gotta be something, isn't it? In fact, if you scan this, you can get my medical record. Try, try it. It will mean absolutely nothing unless when you pull that, that identity card out of your wallet and you go, that's Jesus Christ picture. That's my new name in Christ Jesus. That's my born again birth date. And that number seven, 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 seven seven is my perfect number from my husband. I am the bride of Christ. I don't need an identity as a woman. I only take the identity of my husband. I guarantee you. Whoever's doing that filtering process, whether it's our husband himself or someone who's been assigned to help, they'll say, come on in. But anyone who pulls their identity card out and even dares to point at their face, dares to point at their accomplishments, dares to point at anything outside of the life of Christ in you are not going to make it. And if you think I'm exaggerating, email me at sfinny.com. At IOMAmerica.org because I want to dialogue with you about true salvation. You are not an equal with God. There's nothing you can do to ever be an equal with God. You are not equal with Christ. There's nothing you can do that will ever put you as an equal with Christ. You are the bride of Christ which puts you at second place, not equal. What is the number one deception that has affected our marriages in every culture all over the world? Someone please tell me. Equality in marriage, 50-50. That will destroy marriage faster than anything else in the belief system and philosophies of the world. There's no such thing as equality, not in a country, not in a marriage, not in the church. We can say there is, but all you have to do is wait a little, just a little while, not long, and that marriage will end in divorce. You see, Jesus Christ is my husband. He is head of me. I am one of the bridal members of Jesus. I don't tell him what to do. There's no equality in me having open discussion with him like he's my best friend. He's my husband. And I need to honor him as my husband. And listen to him carefully. And do the things which he has asked me to do. As the bride. But it just so happens... That he calls us co-heirs of the grace of God. Now that will blow your mind. You mean I'm not in charge of Jesus? I can't tell him what to do? No. But yet I'm a co-heir of the grace of God? I don't get it. Well, you won't, Stephen, until you come home. So what does the enemy get to do? Equality, equality, equality. Now tell me guys, is this country big on equality? Number one in the world, okay? How are we doing with that? How's it working for us? Oh, I have rights. I have, po- I have freedom of speech. Really, anyone who has freedom of speech can go on a list to be arrested. If you don't believe me, give it 10 more years. Equality is a game that is used to produce a mailing list. Whoever is demanding equality gets to be on the mailing list. You see? I've actually been told by some of my political friends that your views are relatively safe. Because you actually believe in authority structure. You believe in being told what to do. You believe that we're not equal. You believe that, well, right, because we're not. We're not all made the same. Some of us are strong. Some of us are weak. Some of us are, yeah. We're not the same. So making us all the same is a joke. What's Satan's goal? It's to make us all the same. Now here is the... This is actually funny to me. The whole ambition of Satan himself is to promote equality. You have rights. You're your own people. Ask Rome how that worked out for him. It doesn't work. God doesn't take leadership from the bottom up. We the people up. Do you understand that? God is monarchy. He's not republic. He's monarchy. The king of kings. The lord of lords. You see... He moves this way until we get to the humble servant of the bride of Christ. No, that's not how we're trained. We're trained to rule our leaders from the bottom up. In marriages, churches, and in government. And you know what? Satan is the one to put that in place. Someone want to remind us how he kind of acts in the end? Is he into republic? Is he into elections? Is he into voting? Is he into equal rights? Is he into proclaiming your rights of communication, public free speech? Is he into those things? No. Guys, I've studied enough about countries and wars and rumors of wars. I mean, when I was at Oxford, my main whole focus of 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 my doctorate was international leadership. So I was thrown into these very unusual situations, interviewing cult leaders, interviewing politicians. And here's what my summary was. They're all being lied to. Every one of them thinks they're the deal. They're the meal deal. Their system is the best system. And I know enough about the basic 101 of prophecies to know that in the end, Satan isn't going to take any guff from anybody. No country he will kowtow to. No government system. No religion. He will kowtow to nobody. And it's either his way or something very serious happens. Christians are tortured instantly. What they did in Pakistan this past week Will be the norm for Satan. What is happening in countries you and I know about, some of our two orphanages are growing and growing and growing because of rebels doing this. They will tolerate nobody who does not support their system. That's how the Antichrist will work. Why is this so difficult for us to talk about as a church? It's too scary. La, 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 You must let people think they have control before you can have control of them. Do you understand that? You have to. Soon as they think they're in control is when you can have control over them. It's very easy. I can claim freedom of speech all day long with that professor out of Florida who's threatened to turn me into the Obama administration. And I came back to him with freedom of speech. He says, that doesn't matter to me. If you speak against our president, that's a hate crime and I will turn you in. There's no freedom of speech in America. There's freedom to a certain limit. And then all of a sudden you start reading about stuff in the news. Someone stepped over the limit. "Please send me emails because I can prove I'm right on this one, by our own newspaper articles. There's no such thing as demanding freedom. We're slaves in Christ. We're bond slaves to Christ. You know, it's not the kind of slavery we're used to hearing about from Africa. Bond slaves are saying, I'm a volunteer, bride. I want my husband telling me what to do. Do you? No. Statistics show in the church today, the average woman does not want to be told what to do. I do. I want Jesus to tell me what to do 24 hours a day. I am and I understand what it means to be a bond slave to Jesus Christ. It's a healthy thing. So Romans 11, 34 through 36 tells us this. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. It doesn't say some of the things. I don't want to pick up a translation and have the translator say, oh, we got rid of a few words, just five. It's no big deal. It's just five words. Well, the new NIV is well over five. Just five, he who adds or deletes to the word of God, shall he delete them from the book of life? Don't go telling me that I need to take some time to read your translation that has literally cut stuff out of it because it doesn't match the morbid beliefs of your lifestyle. Number two, playing God is the most pervasive attitude because it characterizes every single uh, descendant of Adam. No human endeavor, object, or relationship is free of the ramifications of man's will set in opposition to or in competition with God's will. What is the number one thing we've talked about? Sermon after sermon, that Satan uses to get this job done, is competition. America is considered the most competitive country in the world. I don't care what the Olympics says. We will kill people to win. We will take drugs and put them in our body to win. We will do whatever we have to do to be the most powerful country, and the entire world physically, religiously, and politically. It's in every branch of our system of education. It's in every branch of our system of sports. It's in every branch of politics. Everything is about lying, cheating, stealing to present yourself as better than your opponent. The basis of Sin is competition. What happened to the days where you would let someone win a board game and enjoy the look on their face that they won? No, we lie, we cheat. It's it's like you know we watch our brother or our sister. You know we're growing up, we're playing Monopoly or whatever, and we're watching them cheat, and we say, "You you're cheating." And then it starts, I am not, I saw you. Yeah. Back and forth, liar, liar, pants on fire. It is in us at birth. They didn't learn it from dad. They didn't learn it from mom. They didn't learn it from their brother or sister. They were born liars, cheaters, and competitors to rise up against the knowledge of God to be better than God. Don't tell me the sin of competition is not needed in this world for him to achieve that he is better than God. And that's what sends God to send his son to say, finish him off. I'm done with him. I'm done with him and all of his competitors. Terminate them all. Anyone who thinks they're better than the average person next to them, terminate them. Remove them. You say, that is not the loving God I serve. You want to bet? Anyone who's still suffering with the sin of competition instead of humility from the Hebrew means little lower than human. So as you're standing next to someone, you should always be a little lower. Competition says I have to rise a little bit higher you're you're interested in reputation, how they're looking at you, how they admire you, how they're whatever, and God keeps track of proud people, and He will enjoy listen to me carefully, no matter what country you're from, He will enjoy taking you down several notches. We either choose humility. Or we're going to be forced into it. And I can spend another hour in a sermon talking to you about the proof that is in Revelations that says God will put man in his place. Little less than human. Number three, one of the first things we need to look at is one's own sin of challenging, opposing, or usurping God's sovereignty. And then to repent of this affront to him is, yet, is of utmost importance. Someone please tell us what sovereignty means. Are we a sovereign country? Now God is a sovereign God, right? I mean, didn't we just read that? That, just as a reminder here, I am, it's an identity statement, I am the owner It's translated out as owner. Lord means owner. Landlord means he owns your home. I am the owner. And there is no other owner. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. The men, that men may know From the rising of the, to the setting of the sun, that there is no one besides me. Sovereign means this. Any good architect knows that people who build things without a plan, you can't direct their steps. What's the scripture in Proverbs that says, man makes his plans, but the Lord Directs his steps. Sovereignty is an actual map laid out of everything that has, will, today, and will be in the future. It's done. He's immovable. There's no one he runs to for counsel going, hmm, I think I screwed up on that one. You got any advice? No, someone got some advice? Uh, where's my counsel? Where's my special counsel? Bring my cabinet in. I need to talk to him. There are no cabinet members. There is God. The creator of everything knows everything. Because cause he's the creator. He put it in place. That's just too much for our brains, I'm telling you. To understand. So sovereignty is done. And anyone who messes with it is going to get in trouble. They're going to get a spanking. Sovereignty is set in place. We step into it. Now let's take a look at the next point. Here's some questions we need to carefully look at. And those of you who are online, you can actually get a copy of this PowerPoint slideshow. There's a little symbol of a PDF next to the microphone button you clicked on. That'll get you this PDF, and you can print it. Those of you who are attending here this morning, there's actually notes there that you can take with you. But these five questions are very important. What is our mindset toward God himself when his will for us crosses our own will? So when we look at, well, I think we even call it the crossroads, or I'm at a fork in the road, should I or shouldn't I? We should always default to the life in here, not analyzing the two roads that are ahead of us. We need to turn internally for the mind of Christ and just go with the flow. It's not psychoanalyzing the two pathways and determining which is more spiritual. I can guarantee you, folks, Satan is more spiritual than the most spiritual person you can pick out in the church. He can deceive himself as an angel of light to the point you will not be able to tell the difference. Even the elect could be deceived by this Christ figure. He's good at what he does. He presents himself as a powerful spiritual image. An angel of light. Not darkness. Lusa. Is light. Lucifer is a being of the light. You think he's going to change that for you and start wearing black hoods and, and and bite off fingers and have blood coming out of the corner of his mouth like some Satanist? No, that's not his game. His game is being perfect. Do we, number two, do we find ourselves mentally setting standards of conduct for those that are around us? So it's kind of like us saying, well, you know, here's my plan. And you don't fit into that. Bye bye. He said, we'd never do that as the church. Really? I've been written off so many times in the past several months of my ministry and the grieving I have suffered with with some of these write-offs because I didn't match the standard list that they put together and what a pastor, preacher, teacher should look like. Three, what goes on in our minds when others and God does not meet those standards? I know what I do bye-bye, you're gone, you're finished, go to hell. Isn't that interesting that that is actually a swear word? Go to hell. I don't think that's accidental. It's a write-off. God's the only one that has that prerogative. Number four, do we function frequently with an independent spirit without regarding for the plans of others, and obviously God. Finally, number five, do we expect to be praised, commended, or even rewarded for every good thing that we do? I had a guy in my office, and probably for 40 minutes, he was just coming in to do some work in my office, and for 40 minutes he went on about what he had accomplished in his life. I think the guy was probably unsaved, but I mean, why do we have such a need for people to recognize our achievements? That's a serious question. Anyone have an answer? So in that belonging, is it an act of independence or is it an act of I want to be like everyone else? I know when I grew my hair out, And I started wearing purple pants with glitter on the bottom of the pants. And I dressed in in ways that a small town farm community in Iowa thought I was off my rocker. Whereas in the cities, they were wearing this stuff all the time and it was considered cool. Was I being independent and my own person? That's what I would tell people. No, I was just like the group I was trying to identify with. Here's my point, guys. I hope you're listening carefully. Individualism is a lie. And it's a deception from the pit of hell. Because there's no one who is independent, including Satan. See, he wants followers, he wants groupage, he wants oneness, he wants one world government, he wants one world religion, he wants groupage of people, including himself, to be a part of a community. Gangs, they don't, they don't want independent lives, they want to be a part of structure and a certain look and a certain sound, a certain language. No matter what group you pick out, you're going to find exactly the same thing. True independents are truly people of hatred. Ambivalence is the best definition of hatred. And that is, I don't really care what you think. I don't care what my father thinks, my mother thinks, my brother. I don't care. Oh, I'm going to hell? Oh, well. You see, that's hatred. There's not really that many people that fall into the category of hatred. But that is true hatred. It doesn't matter to me. Your point of view, your perspective, the scriptures, I don't care. This mindset comes directly from the enemy. In our Isaiah passage, we see what happened to Satan when God casted him out of heaven. He was put on this earth to weaken the nations. Why? Because he tried to raise himself to God's throne and attempt to function as God and to be like God. When he was cast to the earth, he attempted to replicate this sin by manifesting temptations for man to do and act in the exact same way and we certainly call this Godship. So Godship is the most evident destructive element in mankind's relation to God and others. For some, Godship is subtle aspect of the mind, will, and emotions, cleverly disguising or even hidden from view unless and until a certain combination of circumstances trigger it into expression. So here's the deal. I can be discipling someone from a gang. And they are at the beckoning call of that gang leader. They'll kill for them. They'll do whatever they have to do to protect them. They protect their family. They're very tight in their group. They're tight in their culture. They're tight in whatever. So in the beginning, as I'm working with this person, they're showing full-on loyalty, full-on attachment, basically what they're used to. But they haven't been tested yet by the Lord thy God. For God tests whom he loves. And this test is this, right here. Well, we'll see. Until a Christian passes the test of endurance, we're not sure they're going to go to heaven. You shall know them by their Love. You shall know them by their fruit. You shall know them by their deeds. And those who are, those who endure to the end, those shall be saved. Nobody knows that. There's no ticket in anybody's pocket till they pass number four. Endurance through testing is the final exam of true proof of salvation. Argue all you want, but I have not had one person be able to explain that scripture in any other way than it is being presented. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. It's not I got lovey, lovey, lovey down. It's not I got the fruit thing down. It's not I got my deeds nailed down. It is those who endure to the end, those shall be saved. This test must be passed. And it takes a working out of your salvation for your entire life to truly check the box. Don't get me wrong, I do believe in security of salvation. I do believe once saved, always saved. But I also believe that God has the prerogative to toss anyone out of that book He wants to. Because if they were once written in it, and he says if anyone adds or deletes to this book, I shall remove them from the book of life. And I can guarantee you, there are theologians that started writing projects that on the end of your life, you became one of these, that God has literally picked up his eraser, and he has erased you out of the book of life because you took out some of the most critical words That leads people to salvation. I don't know who you are. That's none of my business. I just know that this is true because of my Abba Father said it was true. These are serious words we're talking about here. This is not a concept. This is not a fun little sermon. Repentance in the psychological area of life is critical that you discover what you need to repent of In the mind, in the will, and in the emotions. These four points I want you to carefully review. We're not going to review them thoroughly uh, at this moment. But I do want you to pour yourself over them in prayer. The first one is, for many of us, there are expressions of genuinely egocentric attitudes. But for many, they show up in many forms of selfishness. And that's why you have to carefully think this through. Two, and as with most self-life expressions, rejection needs to be identified as a contributing factor of playing God. Most people have to have control of things because, most people have to play God because they're insecure. Three, Because a proud, self-sufficient, or self-occupied mind is so opposite of the mind of Christ within, true redemption becomes difficult to appropriate and process. Finally, number four, the psychological area of life is the control center, where all appropriations of one's identity in Christ must begin. Here's our identity statement. Of the day, since all truth comes from renewal of mind, the psychological area of life becomes our field of appropriation. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of ourselves. Hey, if that doesn't get you guys, I'm sorry. I I I would just be left with having to pray that God removes the scales from your eyes. Again, this is 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has known the mind of the Lord, the owner, that he will instruct him? Listen to to the way people pray, and I'm telling you, they're ordering God like He's some kind of slot machine. They're telling Him what to do. How dare us tell God what to do? And then, but we have the mind of Christ, and I know that America, one of the most powerful economic countries in the world today, is because of education. Now, as Mike from Dirty Jobs says, we loan money to students of money we don't have to students who cannot pay it back. We loan money to students so that they can get degrees for jobs we don't have anymore. Now, that's Mike from Dirty Jobs on television. That's his philosophy of what's happened to our country. I'm telling you, he's right on. Education has ruined our country. And I'm not talking about basic education. You train your children up in the ways of the Lord. That's healthy stuff. I've even gone to get classwork done on areas from politics to whatever because I needed to understand more about what I do. So it's not being against education. It is the economy of education that has ruined us. God put the mind of Christ in you, Stephen, so you don't have to figure it out. He is obedient to my sovereignty, so just dwell upon the mind of Christ in you. But I don't know how that works. How can the mind be in me? Well, if you don't understand Christ in you, the hope of glory, you're not going to ever figure this one out. If you don't understand the exchange life, who you are in Christ, forget what I said today. It's fruitless. You must understand that Christ lives, lives, lives lives in you. To pour his mind out into your mind for renewal of mind, dumps into the will so you can choose his mind so it gets into the emotions and your emotions go, yes. Not going getting a degree on theology. I study every day. I pull books off of my bookshelves all day long. But it is not who I am. Nor am I striving to be like that author. I want deeper understanding on certain things. Those books mean nothing to me. Take them away, and I will still have this. Whoops, take that away, and I still have the Word of God in me. Put me in prison, and I still have the Word of God in me. There's a good reason why the Lord has allowed 67% of the world's population not able to read this book. There's a good reason for that. How they survived in Christianity all the way up to today? It's called the life of Christ. But no, we have to study to show thyself approved, to handle accurately the word of truth, to see if other people are wrong. That's what we need to do. I study to show myself approved to handle accurately the word of truth because the word is Christ to handle accurately his life in me. The exchange life is absolutely critical to understand all of life. Father, we thank you for the blessed privilege of this truth. You have set us free from our own mind. You have set us free from our own opinions. You have set us free from our own sovereign plans. You have set us free from our own self-destructive independence. Thank you, Jesus, for granting us the privilege to be fond servants of you, our husband. Thank you, Jesus, for being our husband. And we pray as a bride that we will no longer carry around an identity card with our own picture on it, our own data, our own proof that we are individuals aside from it. I just pray that all of us in Christ Jesus would come to dissolve our own identities and put our complete emphasis on your face, your image, who you are, When you and if you, how you, everything about you becomes our life. This we pray.